Hello, and welcome to Growing the Top Line, a podcast where I interview leading executives and CEOs to get their perspectives on growth strategy. My name is Cliff Farah, President and CEO of The Beacon Group, a growth strategy consulting firm. Join us as we dig deeper into the process of, well, growing the top line. All right, everybody, I am incredibly excited to introduce uh, a good friend and client, Sherry Dodd. Sherry is the Vice President and General Manager of Medtronic Care Management Services. She brings more than 25 years experience in the pharmaceutical med device, I know, 25 years, med device and public health sectors to her role as Vice President and General Manager. Um, she also serves on as a uh, board chair for the Minnesota Medical Alley Association, a nonprofit organization focused on leveraging the vast med tech assets in the Minnesota market for healthcare transformation and care. Medtronic Care Management Services includes remote patient monitoring, which is a really big deal these days in a, in a COVID world, um, and care management services focused on improving clinical and economic outcomes for the complex chronic comorbid patients. Key customers are payers, providers, payviders, and home healthcare agencies. Uh, Ms. Dodd joined Medtronic in March 2010. Has it been that long? Uh, she's been with Medtronic for a decade and, and has served in clinical health economic reimbursement and general management leadership roles. Uh, prior to Medtronic, she spent 13 years at Johnson & Johnson uh, and five years at the World Health Organization. She holds master's degrees in Health Economics and Epidemiology from the London School of Economics and the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Sherry works in Minneapolis during the week, but calls Montana home on the weekends. Her husband, Kevin, two fat horses and one three-legged cat seemingly survived during the week without her. Sherry, thank you so, so much for making time to chat today. I have had the opportunity to work with you for well over a decade, and um, I've always found you this really nice mix of uh, cerebral capability and practical doer that I think makes for a great strategist. So I'm I'm really looking forward to learning a little bit more about how you think about um, strategy development and how you've seen it done and how you've done it yourself. So let's start with the first time you can recall being chartered to drive the development of a strategy. Can you remember that? What it what it was? You know, it's funny because I think when I was chartered, the first time I can remember to do it, I don't think I, well, I know I didn't have an appreciation for what was really being asked of me. I, I, I thought I was being asked kind of to go do something individual, you know, go go get some job done um, and figure that, you know, if I just spend enough time thinking about it myself and, you know, organizing my thoughts, I could, in carving out, you know, 40 hours or 80 hours, whatever it took, I could probably just go knock it out of the park. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that? It doesn't work like that. So, no. um, funny thing about strategy. Um, so, that was kind of first lesson. The second one is I also lessened in all this. I learned that a strategy without funding is just like a, I don't know, it's just like a college weekend type of thing where you just like you have all these ideas of all the stuff that you could get done and everyone's rallying around you have a lot of momentum and then like people don't have any more money and you got to start class or something I mean I kept thinking about it in terms of that but it's this that if, if strategy does not have funding it is a pipe dream in the most politically correct way of talking about it <laughs> it's really interesting to me that all this there's tons of time spent thinking about strategy but if there is not a, and with this hope that with a really good strategy, someone will fund. But the idea, part of setting a strategy is actually understanding all along the way, 
the, the fact that how are you going to get it funded? You can't just show up with a strategy and get funding. So kind of building in the linkages and the ties to the decision makers that are going to give you money direct, new money, reallocate money, um, or ask you to go back and find money or all of the three are actually part of that strategy um, path. And I, I did not have appreciation. In fact, I, I feel like I've learned that late in the 25 plus years of experience. I, I really thought you do really good work and put together a really good idea. It just gets funded. And I have learned countless times it, it does not. Really? You think you learned that late? Because in, again, in my, in my experience, when we started working together, you were really, I, I just recall you were very much like make the math work. Right. If we can't make the math work, this isn't going to happen. And that was, you know, what, 15 years ago, it's something true. like that. But I have learned that even when you make the math work, even when you make the math work to get strategy operationalized, it's money and courage. Probably. I'll end there. Full, full stop. Money and courage. <laughs> money and courage. And I think, you know, you can stand behind the better the ROI, the less courage you need. Maybe that's the way it's <laughs> Okay. The leaner, okay. the leaner the ROI is, the more courage that needs to be. Because you don't go by, you know, after you get there, all your facts should be buttoned up in the data. It's not like, you know, you're on the line, you need more analysis. By the time you're on the line, it's like, this is it. This is this is what the ROI looks like. But then there is the, are you going to go? And I think I've learned that those things were a little bit on the line when the math said go. It still took courage or sometimes there just wasn't courage or, or fortitude, I guess, organizational fortitude um, to tip in that could not be explained by the fact that it didn't, it didn't meet all the criteria of a good strategy. What is health economics? What is health economics? So it's funny because I would be so much easier if I was in a profession, you know, in the days where I could say I'm a marketer or whatever. And I used to say, you know, I do health economics and my family would be like, we don't know how to explain that. Like, what is right. that? So, right. I, I train them to say health economics is demonstrating the value of a product in economic terms. Okay. So, so when you talk about ROI and strategy, just for your benefit, yep. um, I would say in my career, 25% of my clients can do that, right? 75% of them have this relatively amorphous, um, opportunity-driven idea, notion of growth and of strategy. And I've always thought your recognition that there had to be an ROI, mm -hmm. right, was different and good. And it's part of our core process, right? We believe that you should be able to measure the cost and measure the return and know what you're, you know, you know, know what you're getting yourself into. Tell me about, um, let's talk about that first strategy that you don't name company names for that first strategy you were responsible for right what'd you do how'd you do it um well it was interesting because it was a strategy that um i'm happy to kind of share was it it was it was basically globalizing clinical research and so you think about in, um, I don't know if this was my first study, but this was, this was a meeting one where I really was in charge of saying like, look, we, um, we need to engage more of our emerging markets in clinical research. But by doing that, here's what we're afraid of. We're afraid that the sites aren't going to be very good. It's going to slow down pivotal clinical studies and time to FDA approval is money. You know, every day, oh, you're yeah. delayed 
you know, getting on the market is at risk. And so we continue to continue to have more um, developed markets, mostly U.S. with a few sites in Europe. You throw Canada one and you kind of call yourself good and you move really quickly through the community. So the idea of, you know, we need to kind of move to, to, to global. And it was one way of kind of saying in terms of just keep people happy, right? We have a key opinion leader and just, you know, throw them a study and it'll be good. And what I had to do is actually really think about if we globalize clinical research, what is truly what are we going to get incrementally in terms of market, in terms of speed to maybe CFDA in China, speed to approval by having local sites, you know, generate kind of evidence for studies um, versus a quick way of doing it and saying this is a strategy just to keep um, really vocal PIs in different countries happy so the sales teams can make their sale that right. order. And so the first I had to start and really kind of say, and I had to really kind of test to really say, what is what is everyone's opinion of what will be accomplished if we have this, if we execute on the strategy? So I had to do a real stakeholder engagement and make sure I understood where everybody was coming from because success okay. would be realized if, if not everybody kind of had the same goals. Then I truly had to understand um, globalizing doesn't even go everywhere. I mean, are we going to everywhere or are we going to some markets and what determines which markets we go to? Um, so for bounded, you bounded the problem, right? You, you, Twice yeah. of the world, really? Yeah. Like going on to Burma? Like we're not not doing that. So we had to be really clear about where we were going um, yeah. about that. And then we had to do a lot of the, the, we spent time doing the financial analysis, make sure people understood that it may, may take more time but this is the benefit on the other side. So it's that from to, we go from having this timeline, so the baseline, and then, you know, what, what a new world would look like once we did this. We did it from a financial standpoint, from a market development, you know, what it does for market development and using typical tools that we use for helping to improve market size, competitiveness. But then we also took an angle that isn't always really popular. You talk about what does it mean for kind of people and talent you know, from the broader, and, and nobody said we want you to come up with a, a talent strategy that wraps around this globalization of clinical research strategy. But I brought that in because because when you're asked to do a strategy or you want a strategy to get sticky, I think you have to show all the ways that it's going to make your organization healthy. And by looking at the impact strategies have on people, talent attraction, retention, and um, overall kind of development, it, it's a good pause to take. And I think people, a lot of people felt it was unnecessary that I thought about that way. But I right now could name 10 people easily that were part of that strategy that are now in positions of leading functions, leading teams, had experiences going overseas, doing all this. But I feel, not to give myself credit, but I feel by building that into what we did as part of the strategy, it yeah. unlocked the potential of, you know, lots, lots of people to be leaders. And that was the, their pivotal opportunity. One of the one of the things that's um, you know like just within the company, just within the bounds of the company, I I have like this fifty x rule that that like you take the core team that's doing the strategy development, and then multiply it by fifty, and that's how many bodies have to buy in for something to succeed, um, and and to actually execute well. You know, it's not just courage; it's it's like you having the ability to instill courage in that next layer and that next layer to convince the layer below that, that this is the right thing to do to, you know, to achieve the goal. So I think that's a, a really 
interesting point, this, this talent strategy or this notion of stickiness or buy-in that, you know, a real successful exercise has to have. For anybody setting a strategy and executing on a strategy, it's so important that you're always articulating how it's not about you personally. It's not Sherry's strategy. And actually, Omar used to sometimes kind of talk about Sherry. And it'd be like, no, this is not about me. This is about the business. Let's call it by the business name because with or without me, this is the right thing to do for the business. And it's one of those things that cuts both ways where, you know, you get recognized in your name and the recognition exposure and all that. But in actual fact, when it becomes about you, you're going to find people that are going to say, look, I got my own stuff I'm working on. Awesome for her, but I'm not about to invest in Sherry. I mean, I think she's fine. Hopefully most people, but I'll go invest in something that makes sense from a business. Got a good leader behind it, but I found that that was getting in my way, actually, having me personally called out about this being my strategy versus about this being the strategy for the business and Sherry is the leader. It may sound small, but kind of getting that 50x and people will get behind a business strategy. They won't always get behind a a peer or a colleague just because... Just human nature. Yeah, it is. We have this section that is in the book that talks about it's all about the people. Right. Like, like if you have the wrong team thinking through strategy, it's hard to get a good outcome. And so figuring out who the thinkers are, who can be, who can be in the room and participate is mature enough. Who's, you know, who kind of gets it. Um, so here's a question for you. I'm, I'm testing a hypothesis that I learned on one of the calls when you were a kid. Did you have a paper route? Were you like, did you, were you a pet sitter? Did you have to muck stalls? I mean, what was, were you an entrepreneur as a kid at all? Yeah, I was a babysitter and I got my certification, but I, I tried to differentiate. So I got a a babysitting certification, which was both CPR, but then they, they taught us kind of like, so like I, I made sock puppets. And I created kind of crafts and I would come with a suitcase. Parents lent me their suitcase, uh, a small, a small one, like a cosmetic case. And inside I had like my kit that I would come in and I would have sock puppets and I would do a lot of stuff. And so I got differentiated as it wasn't based on price. I didn't have to, you know, I could maybe get a premium price of quarter or whatever it was, but yeah, no, I, uh, that was my thing. I took it really seriously and I, and I was very proud of the certification. And I might have gone around and put flyers out that I had received my certification, <laughs> license or whatever, and uh, you know, hire me and had my had my kit. So yeah, so I so from one of our interviews uh, with a with a really just brilliant guy named Marty Curran, who's the chief innovation officer for Corning, who's a client of ours. He said they did a study years and years ago, and and. Uh, they were looking for people who were like good leaders or innovators. And one of the key components that, that was a determinant of, of that, um, you know, that X factor was, was this notion of, were you a, um, you know, were you an entrepreneur as a child? And, and the stunning percentage were in fact, entrepreneurs as children. Yeah. I thought that was super. And, and by the way, every one of my interviews so far has borne that out. Uh, when I've when I've asked that question, so super, super, super fun factoid. Um, okay, I want to go down the rabbit hole for a second. Okay, I have been a huge believer in the power of the business model 
as a differentiator and driver of growth for probably, I don't know, 15 years now. I, I keep getting older, so I, I have to keep adding, adding on. But like 15 years now, I feel like I've seen corporations behave in non-traditional ways with just their business model, just the economic chunk to drive significant share grab. One, one of the areas I saw it was in the, was in, um, the uh, uh, blood diagnostics business for sure. In, in uh, you know, the, the sort of the movement away from traditional CapEx to uh, almost a giveaway of some of that equipment and then a, and then a, you know, a profit generation on the assay on the test. And that was like, that was like my first, huh, wait a second. You know, that's, that's not, that's not normal, normal rules, right? It's razor, razor blade, right? You know, the razor blades are more expensive than the razor. Um, What about you? Like, what do you think about that, the power of that pathway um, in, 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 in growth strategy development or, or in, or even just the achievement of growth? So I'm a, I'm a big fan because I feel majority of my career, certainly um, for quite a while, has been trying to think about other ways outside of a reimbursed path. So in a lot of history reimbursement, you can play that. I find it, there's some cleverness in reimbursement, find the right codes and, you know, all of that. But in general, I find it very boring um, and I don't find it very innovative. And I find that it continues to put companies in a place of, having to differentiate on other things that need to, they need to throw in for free. And so you end up from an overall standpoint, trying to lump in a lot of value, add things around and you create forums and engagement opportunities or positions or whatever. But at the end, you're not actually, you know, you may think that you're grabbing share, but at a much lower margin, if you really were to cost out the total cost to conserve, okay, you know, we can do it and it's history of doing it. But I've been involved very actively in a number of new business models, both, you know, in the value-based healthcare kind of framework, um, which is both demonstrating an outcome um, and trying to find kind of more guaranteed type of models is, is one way of doing it, certainly. And we've got some really big ROI programs in our remote patient monitoring where we essentially went to payers and said, look, if you allow us to pick the patients and you allow our nurses to do the initial kind of triage of the data that's coming in um, as we remotely monitor patients, we will guarantee a certain ROI at the end of one year in terms of reduction in claims costs. And we will build in regression to mean, you know, we, we will do all these, all of these things. What we found through this is, you know, sometimes you're ahead of your customer. They don't necessarily understand or the people who we're dealing with haven't connected with their whole organization. So sometimes you can be leading in your business model and actually you don't have a full understanding of your customer in terms of what, what that actually means. Um, and anytime you enter a new business model, right, you're not an expert at it either. So you have a lot, you got a lot of learnings. And I think part of the beauty of that is if you are experimenting, you are naturally going to be ahead of your competitors if they are not experimenting. The difference is you can experiment all day long. If you don't take time to understand what you've learned and adjusted, that also is a little bit of a, of a waste. But why I like new business models is because I think it takes you out of the ASP corner takes you out of the got to differentiate on something else, which is a pretty high cost. You have to keep your distribution, direct distribution people in place, you know, to people and all of that and come at it from a more neutral space and just say, look, if there's no value here. There's no value. And you walk away, you tip people in. Um, and then you, you know, you work harder I feel, for it because you, 
there's a lot on the line, including the revenue, but also that opportunity. Once people trust you, then they'll allow you to do it again, let you go deeper, and let you go wider. And that to me is a growth strategy like none other. Yeah, I, you know, I work for a lot of big companies. And one of the challenges I think you have in a big company is the amount of visibility. So publicly traded companies, there's so much visibility on everything you do. And it's hard to try something new, right? And so one of the pathways in our framework talks a lot about this sort of disruptive innovation area. And, and, and I think that where that best happens, you're, I don't, I'd be curious to see what you think about this. Like I, I think about them as test beds, is like little geographies. Like go do it over there, yep. right? Send your kids away to college, let them learn, and then let them come back and tell you what they learned. But don't mess with the core. Right. So, so go try this stuff either internationally or with a different customer community or, you know, quietly under this umbrella of protection that you put over them and you only celebrate it once it's successful. What do you think about that? Um, so on two fronts is the idea of what is success. And I think in the normal business models, you know, it's a, you do, our business is so, so used to success is measured by you're launching a new technology. So you're going to see the success in or you have some promo campaign, whatever you're kind of doing, and you have these kind of quarterly, um, almost like sales incentive type of programs where you actually, and they're, they're measured on a quarter basis. When you're trying right. new business models, you're not going to see it on the quarter. Especially in ROI models where you have to have it run a certain amount of time and you're still kind of experiencing, you, you may not see it for two years. In fact, many of our payer ROI models, by the time we get a contract, 12 to 18 months to get a contract back yeah. everything's fine, data security, privacy, IP. Yes. Then you get into actually doing the service. At the end of one year, mature claims, reconciliation all the way down. You're two, you're two years before you actually know if this works. And so success is a longer timeline. And I think that that's what's hard for large companies to do because they are not used to long timeline for actually seeing if what you're doing is successful. They so do that, all the trial work. And that, that's what's different with our business is we don't do the big clinical trials to prove that this works. We actually go into it, get paid, experimenting, learning. And then in two years' time, we'll find out, was it wildly successful, mildly successful, on the border successful, not successful? Yeah. So that's why the success piece is hard. And I still think that if you're learning, man, you already have, are generating value in that, that that somehow needs to get quantified from a business of kind of saying, you know what, may not have been successful, but guess what we didn't do over those two years? We didn't buy claims data because we were generating our own. Yeah. We have to buy fancy risk stratification methodologies because we were learning our own. By the way, you've got 15 people now in the organization that has been living, breathing, messy data, cleaning it up, understanding how payers and data providers. And that, that's worth hundreds of thousands. Sales meeting food and drink budget, right? You know, right there. So I uh, I think that's the hard part is just getting enough of a timeline on some of these big business model innovation strategies, getting enough runway to prove success or non-success and quantify how even the learnings brought value and save, you know, save the company money that maybe they would otherwise spend trying to learn this through somebody else. What kind of a bet do you make when you think about like, and, and not, you don't have to be specific you know, like where you are right now, I'm just saying in general, as you think about these, these evolutionary steps you can take, 
and you think about it in terms of like the the revenue pie, right? Like you know, I don't know. You have to make a hundred dollars, right? Of that of that hundred dollars, what part of the commit comes from an entirely new breed of sock puppet that you're going to use to go uh, dazzle uh, the near, I don't know. You're going to go into pet sitting. You're not going to go into babysitting. You're going to learn dog CPR. You're not going to. So what person, like how much do you think is appropriate for risk? Um, just don't like, just gut, like 20%, 30%, 40%. I, I think in the whole scheme of stuff, right. Especially when you're innovating in a tiny sliver of total revenue, man, yeah. you should be able to, take on, you know, wouldn't be too worried about it. And I think that when it comes to the materiality of any of these strategies in terms of being, you know, diluting revenue for a $35 billion company, there's so many things you can do with it. So I think the smaller the the smaller the the revenue input to the larger, you know, the less that you should use. Otherwise it's not experiment. It's not experimenting. People won't take that kind of risk. They'll cut corners. They'll not be bold in their thinking if they feel that they've got to meet that type of um, number for, uh, for for risk. So, so on the fringe okay. side, on that, you know, so, so okay. So when you think about the majority of the businesses that we work for, that you've worked for, yeah. 80, 90% of your revenue is from your core, right? It's like doing what you know how to do, doing it well, defending against, you know, evaporation. Um, and then there's this 10% that's this emerging side. I believe you have to have a champion that protects that. Yep. Like you have to, you as a leader have to know that you're going to have to not be popular. You're going to have to throw elbows. You know, you're going to have to put your career on the line from time to time. How often do you feel like you put your career on the line in your career? How many how many times have you been like, uh, this is I'm going to the mat on this? Four times. Four times. Four times. Where I really thought like I could lose my job, kind of a vote of no, not no confidence. Um, yeah. at a, where I really thought like, do I? Um, what's my plan B? <laughs> right. Where I really was kind of actively thinking like this this could go bad, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure um, I could recover her reputationally. Yeah, I think person. I think I'm like I'm. I'm in the six. I'm in the six range on that. Yeah, I'm in the six. And what's funny is, as an entrepreneur, and this book is for both. Um, the difference is you're betting your kids' tuition. You know what I mean? It. It. I mean, it's the same. It's the same in a in a in a career where you're salaried, but it's just a little. Yeah, I mean, where, where are we going to go? When I said that. I thought that's where I felt in the. In the moment, but I guess that's important because you got to have leaders and you have to understand what they're what they're looking at. I would imagine that if it all kind of got turned around, that people who were higher up with me would would disagree that it was ever that risky, right? So I think that it's, it's a different perception. I would say I'm probably facing you know right now one that's pretty substantial. It's a really big swing, and I have a lot of people saying, "Take the swing." And I'm I'm taking the swing and also thinking if this doesn't go, you know, yeah. no one's saying take the swing and I'll catch you. Right. <laughs> but I'm saying I'm taking, and I think it's because you know that fear of you know if it fails, man, where am I going to go? Yeah, yeah. Keeps people from doing the bigger swings. I I also think though it gives you a clarity of of commitment, right? Like if you're in, you're in, and you're going to make it succeed through force of will. And um, not everybody has that. I I think. 
some people think they, well, you know, it should just happen or, you know, let's play fair. And not that you shouldn't not play fair, but I, I just, when, uh, when I started my company, my wife framed it, I was having crisis of doubt and, you know, am I going to succeed? Am I going to fail? Oh yeah. Oh God, please let me survive. God, you know, every night on my knees, please God. Um, and, um, and she framed this picture for me and it, it, it says, we will, it's a quote that says, we will either find a way or we will make one Hannibal Carthaginian general, like 245 AD or something. Yeah. You know, some, some, some date. And I, I have, I've become to, I've become a big believer in force of will, you know, not quitting, not giving up, figuring it out, like just, just noodle on it. You wrestle it, flip it. You'll figure it out um, in time. And I think that, that you need that as a strategist because um, you have to know what the logical boundaries are. Like when, like when I game out a strategy, I'm always thinking about like, if it were me doing this, but you know, em- empathy is the number one skill I think the consultant has to have. And so, so I'm like, if it were me and doing it at my standard, which is a pretty damn high standard, how far could I go? And then is it reasonable to assume that's a boundary for the, for the team? I think you have to do that. Um, and I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure at some level you do that as you're thinking out like, okay, am I going to take the swing or not? Yeah. Is- I would say that Omar helped me with this. In fact, he just did a talk with um, Bill George and, and, uh, and uh, Jeff Martha called the good leader. And they were just kind of talking about, but Omar kind of taught me, like, if you believe in something, they were talking about what makes a good leader. If you believe in something, you have to be tenacious about it. So when you pick it, when you have a vision and from your vision, you, you figure out the strategy to how to get there and you think about all the operational assets, the minute you lose conviction, it is going to fail. Yeah. <laughs> and so it, it, it has to be. And I talk about the, you know, what also makes it fail is, you know, and that's, I, maybe it's part of the courage too, not just other people buying and tipping into it, but that you yourself have to believe this. And you have to yeah. believe Right reasons, right? It has to be around the business. It has to be purpose-driven. It has to be clear. Um, you have to be open for the feedback. But it's, you know, people are going to throw darts at it and all the things that are going to go against it. And you have to rubber up about that. You have to truly just let that stuff bounce. And you have to watch your team because the longer it takes, the more people see the naysayers and all the reasons why it won't work and all the things that are in front of it, you do start to, you know, that um, share of hearts and minds. You know, there's wobbly period to that while people are anticipating that you'll either. In, in, we put just recently a strategy ago. Sorry, and it, we kind of um, we could have gone bigger and we, we medium sized it because we thought that showed it was bold and bold enough and 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 kind of um, take a bite on it. And when we presented it to Jeff, he actually said, "I see something missing." We called out. We were missing a big component, and part of me thought, um, "Well, one person on my team thought that we were going to be laughed because it was too big." And in, in actual fact, Jeff said, "No, you guys. I wanted you to even think bigger." And part of me was like, "Good, we didn't get laughed at." I wasn't as worried as this other person was. Um, I can't manage bigger with the current resources that I like. I can't take make this strategy bigger without a lot more commitment from the organization. A lot more support. Um, like I have to rewire what I'm putting forward in the ask because I can't deliver on this, you know, as a step up. And um, but it was a good reminder for my team that in terms of you know play small and you know you may get laughed at, but you also may be kind of told like that's 
it's not not enough. Not enough. Yeah, you have to get it, especially in larger companies. I think you do have to somehow compel attention, right? Whether it's whether it's in the near term or in the longer term. All right, so shift gears for me right now. Okay, I want to know the coolest growth strategy you've ever seen in your career. It doesn't have to be you that did it, but you were just like, whoa, yeah, they got it. Anything come to mind? I'm going to call out one that I thought was cool, and it is one that I was, I was part of. Um, so not necessarily the best, but it kind of had a recency bias about it, and it was, it was big. So um, non-insulin-dependent type 2 diabetes, okay. huge market. Completely underserved. Think about what, what these type 2 diabetics have. Uh, you can, you can have a urine test, kind of, you know, you've got, you've got um, glucose, you do a, a finger stick test. You find out that you're pre-diabetic or something's going on. You go to your PCP and you're told diet is being your modification prescription. And then you try to manage it yourself. And then you suddenly get diagnosed. And then you maybe get to see an endocrinologist if you're lucky, but there's so few of them. But you're back to behavior modification on your own with printouts from your physician about diet and exercise. You maybe get to see a dietitian, but you're told to lose weight, stop eating carbs. You know, here's some websites you can go to, kind of go manage that. Go manage a disease that kills millions of people every year is nearly at pandemic when we didn't used to talk about pandemics, but epidemic level. And these are the tools, eight by 11 sheets of paper and a quarterly visit maybe with your PCP. Yeah. And yeah. so we, we put a strategy together that actually looked at using sensor technology along with apps, behavior modification, coaching. It doesn't even feel like it's that you know crazy to kind of put it all together, but for a medical device company that puts things in people's bodies so you don't have to worry about compliance. So you don't have to worry about changing anyone's behavior because the right. implants themselves. We put together the strategy. We did an entire patient journey, um, agile marketing, not just agile product development, put together an entire patient journey about what it really looks like, visualized it all over a board, post-it notes, changing pathways, completely immersed the team in understanding the patient, lived in people's homes that had type 2, went and stayed with them. Wow. I mean, not that stayed in, you know, came to see them at breakfast. I mean, lived and breathed that that individual. Yeah. Put it, showed what it would take, the market, the market sizing, the pricing, everything that we need, put together the strategy um, at a time when there was a change in the leader. And, you know, anyway, this strategy did not get, did not move forward. But what was cool about it was we lived and breathed the patient. We understood the market. Yeah. More I ever have, and that's why I wanted to call this one out. We talk about being patient focused and everything we do is for the patient. To actually, and maybe you talk to a patient and you kind of have a dinner with a patient, going to somebody's home in in um you know Tuscaloosa and seeing what it looks like and how they manage. Yeah. See what's in their pantry and their refrigerator and see the tools on phone that and that changed everything for me in terms of how I think about setting a strategy go forward. You know, it's it's interesting. You, you know, as you're telling this story, I um, uh, another one of the interviews I did um, is with a an, another uh, brilliant strategist guy named Kevin Waters, and and Kevin um, was he took over as the CEO for Chase uh, Card Services, and we were we were classmates at business school, and uh, Kevin was telling the story of um, 
how he would go into call centers and sit with the reps and listen into them on their calls and, uh, and, and kind of hear the pain that people were in and as they, as they were trying to deal with their, their issues. And um, I, I, think, I think that you know, Beacon has made a good career out of helping translate you know, what we learn about the customer and the market to our clients in a condensed version because that's all you, you have time for sometimes. Um, but I think in healthcare in particular, um, you know, you have such a low margin of error and there's so much good that comes out of being right that I, I, I really like the notion of this, this coexistence, this immersion to, to validate that, you, you know, what you came up with working with a firm like ours really is practical and um, is going to make a difference. So that's, that's great. I, I appreciate that. Just because you sell to them or just because you, you know, engage, like, do you really know your customer? And that's why I think Beacon does so well is that you do that synthesis because you don't have time, nor the credibility, nor will people necessarily give you the the, the real skinny on what's happening. Um, and so you do need consultants that help you with that overall process. And it's an and strategy. You've got to go find a way of immersing yourself um, day in the life and truly not just as a, a road trip one off, like, and how do you build it in and test, you know, unconscious biases that people have in terms of what they thought or people don't know how to use technology? Uh, no, that's not true. They don't know how to use hard to understand technology. Yeah. Or technology, you bet they can. So. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think we're at this inflection point where um, the caretakers and the patients are tech savvy enough and the user experience is such a focus now for app developers that they worry a lot about making it usable. And um, the, the, you know, this, this post COVID world that you find yourself in right now is um, and where in this and the, and the role you serve for Medtronic, I think is just such a critical one because um, I believe, and I hope that this remote clinical engagement um, continues to happen. And I think it's important because I feel like I feel like uh, part of the reason people suffer is they don't have easy access to care. And what's easier than you know, uh, you know, a, a continuous monitoring device, or you know, or or, or or clicking an app on the phone, or or uh, you know, engaging in a video conference with a caregiver? Um, those are all like super great things. And I, I think back on my parents' journey and kind of their end of life stuff, and and it would have been really nice to have access to this kind of stuff. So you're doing a great job in, in a, in a really critical area. And I, you know, Sherry, I really appreciate you making time to chat about this with me. Um, I think anyone who's listening to this learned a ton and uh, I, I appreciate the insight that I'll be able to incorporate into the book as well. So thank well, tell, you. Help me understand though. So you say that you learned something new on, on all of these calls. What, what did yeah. I share with you that is kind of from you? Okay. Hold on. Um, I love that you didn't realize that on your first project, you were being asked to develop a strategy, right? That, that, that you, you know, that, you know, it's not, it's not hubris. It's not hubris. Um, it, it's more like an experience, right? You, you, you just don't realize that someone would ask you to do this, right? Isn't that someone else's job? Someone more say, why would you ask me to do it? Uh, and I think that's a, I think that happens a lot. I think people get, get asked to do things and they don't realize how important um, 
it's like not even knowing the framework. So just think that you're just kind of asked to go do a task, like individual contribute a task and generate kind of your ideas and not totally understanding and even envisioning where this could go or the importance of it or the linkage. Um, and I think, you know, having a guide or a framework for thinking about this when given and asked to kind of go do this is going to be enormously helpful. Yeah. If someone said, I need you to go design a strategy for the company that will go up three levels for decision-making for investment. One, it probably would have been so daunting. I would have like, I don't know how to do it. Right. <laughs> but he described it that way. So I just went ahead and did it and fumble, fumble, and we kind of got through. But yeah, I think, you know, a, a book like this is going to be helpful for that guide too, because otherwise it's pretty daunting. I think so. I think the, the other stuff I learned from you is this notion of, um, uh, you call it money and courage. I call it mandate and resourcing, right? Like, like it's not, I mean, the money has definitely got to be there. Um, and I can't tell you how many, uh, you, you know, I, as I advise entrepreneurs in my life, I struggle because they're so bootstrapped most of the time, you know, they're, they're real. Like, so they have great opportunity in front of them. If they could only access the resource, they could really do great things. Larger companies, I think you're right. You can you can get access to that resource, but you also need the mandate. And um, having the mandate and the right kind of leadership behind you gives you the courage, which I think kind of came out a little bit here. Um, I I really dig, um, and I think it's very important that you bound problems and problem statements. So knowing what you're trying to solve for is super important. And I and I think I think people are afraid to ask or say, I don't know. Hey, what are we really doing here? Right, don't you think? Yeah, that you should know. And I think the, and then asking the question, um, like, and who cares about this? And I often will say that. It's all like, look, I'm not trying to be smart ass, but like, who, who cares? If we solve this problem, yeah. who cares? And if you can't articulate the who cares in the same way that we're kind of caring, for me, that it means that your bound isn't right or your value proposition isn't right, or something else kind of isn't right. So it's, so it's literally, you know, a practitioner needs to not be afraid to ask those kinds of questions, right? Like, why am I doing this? Or what did you really mean? Or who cares about that? I think that's, I think that's a big deal. Um, and then I love this notion. Sorry. <laughs> so if you got all of those kind of inside kind of highlights, then this has been an amazing hour. <laughs> it has been. Wait, but wait, I'm not done. Um, wait, wait, I love, I don't think most people would appreciate that it's okay to not be an expert in a new business model, <laughs> right? Like you're not, you're trying it and there's value in the try. Uh, I think is probably an underappreciated mindset. Um, and I, and I, and I sort of, I sort of also appreciate that the complexity of some of the models that are deploying doesn't give you an immediate sense of success or failure. I, I think, you know, that's probably more true in large companies that have less direct accounting. I think for for more entrepreneurial activity or smaller company behavior, I think you know right away because it's it's got to align with your your cash flow and you know are you gonna are you gonna keep. I know where it's going. How does that relate to size and scale? Because in Medtronic, if you if anything any strategy doesn't show size and scale there's always a question in terms of why are we doing this but there's always an expectation behind that that size and scale comes in the same tranches or in the same kind of cadence that you expect of your core business so when you're looking and people will say 
I don't know about this strategy because it hasn't, you know, doesn't have size and scale. And I was like, yet. It doesn't have size and scale yet. And so the idea. But how long does size and scale take? Oh, God. In new business models, in, in truly new business, where it's not just new for you, but it's new for your customer. I, I think this could take upwards of, you know, five years easily. I think that's right. What's scale to you? Like what is what is the hundred million? At least that's kind of material. That's yeah. That's so I so I think by the way, um, you're not alone. Every person that I talk to about this has the challenge of, you know, it depends on the company, right? Is it is it six zeros? Is it eight zeros? Is it nine zeros? You know, associated with an opportunity within some measurable time frame, which is why I think oftentimes you'll see. Um, this protection, you know, let's go prove it and get some sustainable mass before we tell everybody about it. Um, hey, Sherry, thank you so, so much. I appreciate it. Writing a book and, and having just the, the courage to do it and put it out there. And you're going to help, you're going to help hundreds of thousands of people. I hope so. I hundred millions of people should buy this thank book. People. I'll be one of the first. I want an autograph. All right. Team's gonna get it. So awesome. That's awesome. All right, Sherry. Thank you so so much. Yeah, Bye. thanks to the team. Appreciate it. Bye bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Growing the Top Line. For more information about growth strategies and to learn about our firm, please go to BeaconGroupConsulting.com. That's B-E-A-C-O-N-G-R-O-U-P Consulting.com. And if you're interested in the book Growing the Top Line. It's available for pre-order on Amazon and Barnes & Noble.